Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 338 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Dale Bailey. He's the author of the novels of The Fallen, House of Bones, Subterranean Season, and Sleeping Policemen, which he wrote with Jack Soleil Jr., as well as the short story collection The Resurrection Man's Legacy and other stories. His short fiction has won the Shirley Jackson Award and the International Horror Guild Award and been nominated for the Nebula and Bram Stoker Awards. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel In the Nightwood, which was edited by our producer John Joseph Adams, and about his most recent short story collection The End of the End of Everything. And now here's our interview with Dale Bailey. All right, so we're here with Dale Bailey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so in your story, The Blue Hole, it says, That was the summer I turned 13, the summer I smoked pot for the first time, the summer I fell in love with movies and science fiction and rock and roll. And I was just curious if that was autobiographical at all, if you ever had a summer like that. I I did. I don't know that it was when I was 13. Times are kind of hazy <laughs> at this point in my life. But uh, but yeah, it was it was early in my adolescence. I fell very much in love with those things, and uh, and uh, that kid in that story who was you know buying paperback books off the spinner rack in the drugstore and and uh, listening to uh, the Clash is uh, is is very much me. Uh, so yeah, I mean, was there a particular moment that you first discovered it? Did somebody hand you a book, or did you come across a book, or what happened? Um, I actually, I actually came to science fiction well before I came to the other, uh, to the other things, to, uh, what, to, to pot and to, uh, to, rock and uh, roll. yeah, no kidding, to rock and roll. Um, my father handed me the Hobbit when I was just barely able to read the Hobbit. So I must've been, you know, uh, in second grade or something. So able to able to comprehend it at only the most basic level. And uh, I read that, and I, uh, I moved on to reading the Narnia books. And, uh, and from there, I discovered the, uh, the science fiction section in the local library. And I read my way through just about everything they had, and then I started over again and read it a second time. <laughs> wow. So was your dad a big science fiction fan then? You know, my dad wasn't. My dad, my dad, my dad was a college professor, and he he had, you know, he he started teaching in the '60s when Tolkien really took off, and I think he came to Tolkien that way. So he was more of a of a Tolkien uh, of, a, of a Tolkien fan than a real science fiction fan. But he was very he was he encouraged my interests a lot. He you know, he took me to see Star Wars maybe thirty times, I think, <laughs> wow. uh, when when it first came out. So, so he he encouraged my interests a lot. He let me stay up and watch Hammer horror movies on the late movie when they used to have the late movie. Uh, so, so I came to a lot of this stuff early, and it, I guess it came together in my adolescence, and uh, and it became you know central to my identity in some ways. So was your dad an English professor or something else? He was an English professor. Uh, my mother was an English teacher and my father was an English professor. And uh, the apple doesn't fall far <laughs> from the tree. I, uh, in my day job, and am an English professor and my wife is a high school English teacher. So <laughs> wow. there you go. My daughter is an English major. So <laughs> it runs in the family, I guess. Yeah, and so so they didn't. Did they look down on fantasy and science fiction at all as as English professors? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I mean, I've run into that that kind of uh, prejudice, bias, what have you, obviously in my career. But my parents certainly did not. In fact, uh, my father. Uh, had a colleague who was also interested in science fiction and he was trying to build the science fiction collection in the college library. And I, uh, I became his unofficial consultant, you know, suggesting he buy the, 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 the latest, uh, Philip K. Dick or what have you. Uh, so, so it was, uh, it, it, it was not looked down upon at all. 
that that's when you were a kid or a teenager? Yeah, I guess I must have been, you know, 12, 12-ish, 13-ish, the same age, I guess, as the, the kid in the blue hole. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it just, it was very much my life at that point. I, you know, I suspect this is true of a lot of writers in the genre, but it's kind of an outsider. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of social connections and I, that world just gave me a place to go. And, uh, that was, that was very, uh, welcoming to me. So you didn't have any other friends who were interested in fantasy and science fiction? I, you know, I, I can't think of a single one. Uh, those connections came later on as I, you know, as I grew up, but I was very isolated in, in that respect. I, uh, you know, I lived, I lived off the, uh, the library books, the books I got at the local drugstore and I, uh, uh, the movies that came, you know, to the, to the theater, Star Wars and, uh, things like that. But, um, beyond that, I, I really had no connections to the field. I knew nothing about fandom, even that it existed. Uh, and, and I knew very little about the science fiction magazines that were, you know, then the, so important to the genre, uh, until, and, until, uh, my father started subscribing me to them. Uh, and then, and then I got those regularly as well. I mean, the character in the story is reading Starlog magazine. Did you ever read Starlog? Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a subscription to Starlog for, for many years. Uh, Starlog had a column. I, uh, I, Starlog had a column devoted to, uh, amateur fiction. And I sold, I sold, that's the wrong word, <laughs> uh, since they didn't pay any money. I placed a story there, uh, when I was, uh, 1979, 80, something like that. I would have been around 12 years old. Um, shortly after Star Wars came out, uh, and, and I remember I got the letter saying that I'd placed the story and my sister, who is three or four years older than me, uh, came in the door and I'm, you know, I'm very excited and I, I'm showing her the letter and she said, are you getting paid for it? And I said, no. And she goes, talk to me when you get paid. <laughs> <laughs> that was my sister. Uh, so, but yeah, I remember discovering Starlog at a local convenience store. It had a picture of uh, an X-Wing fighter on the cover and I thought, I've got to have that. And, uh, and, and so I subscribed shortly after that. And so that story that you placed there, that was the first thing that you had that appeared anywhere? Well, actually, I, that's, that's the second part of the story, which I should have, which I should have mentioned is, so I was very excited about this and, uh, and I, I got a letter about a month or two afterwards saying they had canceled the column. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so my first, uh, my 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 first placement of a story uh, was revoked, unfortunately. So did 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 you have anything else around there? Or did you have to wait ten years before something else appeared? Uh, I went to Clarion in about 1992, and uh, I was what twenty? How old was I in 1922? Twenty uh, twenty four years old, I guess. And, uh, I, I sold a story while I was at Clary and one of my teachers was Chris Rush at Fantasy and Science Fiction, the editor then. And, uh, and she bought one of the stories that, uh, I had written at Clarion. So that was, that was when things finally started getting into print. So what story was that? It's a story called Idleman's Machine. Uh, I don't, it, I don't think it's been reprinted but one time. Uh, so it's long lost to history now. Um, it never appeared in a collection or anything like that. I mean, did, would you, did it express, would you say, some of the same concerns that you have now, or have you shifted a lot from, from that early story? You know, that early story was about fathers and sons. And uh, if you read through the first collection of stories I published called The Resurrection Man's Legacy, you would be uh, perhaps struck by how many stories were about fathers and sons, how many stories were about southern West Virginia, 
where I grew up and, uh, and, and I think I sort of exhausted that material, you know, about, about the time, uh, 2000, 2001 came around and, uh, I moved on to, to other things. I mean, you mentioned that, so in this, uh, this collection, uh, the end of the end of everything, you say in the, um, sort of the acknowledgements or the afterward that you had sort of a, about a six year period of writer's block, right? That was that around, around that time? It, it happened around, uh, 2002, 2003. Uh, I was in graduate school or I'd just gotten out of graduate school and started my first teaching job. And, uh, for that reason, you know, I had a lot on my plate and, and that was one of the reasons I turned away from writing. And, uh, and then I had some health problems that, that, uh, very much occupied my time. And I just didn't get back to it until around 2010. So the stories in that, that collection, the end of the end of everything, were all, were all with a couple of exceptions written 2010 and later, and I think most of them in 2012 and 13 and, and, and after that. So was it, I mean, were you still having ideas for stories that you wanted to write and you just were overwhelmed by other things or were you just not having ideas that, no. that excited you? I, I was, um, I wasn't even thinking about trying to have ideas at the time. Uh, I am, uh, you know, I, perhaps this is oversharing, but it's no secret. I'm bipolar, and uh, I was just very much concerned with trying to pull myself together, and uh, and and as a consequence, you know, just trying to hold my life together was about all I could do, and I finally was uh, was properly treated, and uh, and. And then I found myself drawn back to writing. If you look at the, if you look at the acknowledgements, you'll see a reference to, uh, to Dr. Sin, uh, I think is, uh, Jay Sin is his name and, uh, and, uh, sort of bringing me back into the light, I said, in the, in the, uh, in the acknowledgements. And, and he was the guy who really, um, you know, found a way to, uh, a medication regimen that, that worked enough for me to, to get back to a normal life. Well, that's great. And so then what was that process of starting to write again? Like, what was the first story that you wrote um, coming out of that? I think, I don't know that I can answer this definitively, but there was a story uh, called The Crevasse, which I wrote with Nathan Ballengrun. And um, Ellen Datlow had invited us independently to uh, to submit a story to this uh to this anthology called Lovecraft Unbound. And Nathan was visiting right before the the deadline. I mean, you know, a day or two before the deadline and neither one of us had started writing anything. And we were sitting on the, on the, the back deck, uh, drinking beer. And I, I said, do you have anything? And he goes, I had nothing. And I said, uh, I have nothing either. Of course I hadn't had anything for, for several years at that point. And, uh, we started talking. We ended up going down to my uh, to my office in the basement, and uh, and I, I started writing this story, the crevasse, uh, with just a, a you know a, a, a bare inkling of where it might be going. And uh, I remember I got two or three paragraphs in, and, and Nathan said, "You're good. You still got it." So <laughs> that was that was very encouraging. Uh, so we we spent the night taking turns at the typewriter. Or the, there were the computer, I guess. That shows my age. Uh, taking, just rotating through the, through the story until we had finished a story, uh, you know, by, by the next morning. And, uh, that's, I think that was the first story I wrote when I sort of came out of that very dark period, which is, you know, it's a, it's a pretty dark story, actually. And how long is that story? It's it's just about four or five thousand words. It's not it's not it's not a real long story. I don't think we could have written much more than that in the, that that you know that space of ten or twelve hours. And then we uh, you know we asked Ellen for a day or two, as I recall, to uh, to polish it up, and then we sent it in, and and she took it. 
I mean, still, I mean, four or five thousand words in one night is a pretty good. That's a pretty good night. You know, that's an amazing night for me. I'm lucky if I can if I can write a thousand words uh, in you know four or five hours at the computer. Uh, so I think part of it was the the sort of spurring each other on was part of it. And uh, that four or five thousand words, of course, was was split. Right, I didn't write the <laughs> whole thing, so uh, I guess I wrote about two thousand words of it. I remember, I remember we got to a point, and I was writing a scene, and uh, uh, what was supposed to be the final scene, and and I looked back at at what Nathan had just written, and I, I said, wait, wait, you know, this is the final scene, not what not what I'm. Not when I'm writing now. So we just cut the that last scene that I was working on off the story, and uh, that was that was you know how we wound up with the, the ending of the story. Because I saw you say elsewhere that you usually spend a couple months on each story. I I do that. I can count on the uh, you know on 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 two or three fingers the number of stories that have been written at speed. Um. I write very slowly, and uh, you know the the uh, the one other exception I can think of is right after um, the World Science Fiction Convention in Philadelphia, right around two thousand or so, and my plane home was delayed by twelve hours or something absurd like that. So. I bought a notebook and started writing just to just to fill the time. And by the time my plane landed, I had the story in place. So, other than that, it's a it's a it's kind of a grueling process for me. Was that story that you wrote on the plane? Was that has that appeared anywhere? Yeah, uh, Ellen Ellen Datlow bought that too. Uh, it's called. No wait, I I'm confused. Gordon Van Gelder bought that story for fantasy and science fiction, and then Ellen later reprinted it. Uh, it's called Hunger, A Confession. And uh, Ellen reprinted it, and then uh, John Adams, John Joseph Adams, reprinted it in Nightmare. Uh, so it's hanging out there in, 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 the, uh, in the world of the Internet, if, if you want to see it. Hmm. So, so going back to Nathan Ballancrude for a second. So, how did you know him, and how did it come that he was staying at your house? Um, we were um, we were roommates at Clarion uh, back in ninety two, and uh, and that was you know uh, by chance. I was living in Tennessee; he was living in North Carolina, and uh, he called me up. We we had gotten each other's names and numbers, you know. And he called me up and said, do you want to ride up with me? And so he came and got me, and we drove up to Michigan State together, um, you know, overnight. Uh, I forget how long. It, was a, it took forever, it seemed like. And we talked the whole way, and then uh, we, we, we got there, and we found out that we were roommates. And uh, we just we clicked. Nathan and I have... Uh, there was a there was a brief you know interregnum of a few years when Nathan left writing himself, and uh, he was living in New Orleans then, and we kind of fell out of touch, but then we reconnected uh, in the late nineties, and uh, we've been, you know, just very close friends ever since. Uh, I think rarely does a day pass that Nathan and I aren't in touch with one another uh, through texting, if if nothing else. Well, so have you ever collaborated on anything else? You know, we have not. Um, we have tried. We have talked about it. Um, I think what has happened is that first experience occurred in, in, under such a pressure situation that it was it was a little easier for us to to do, uh, and it's a fairly simple story. But I think our aesthetics have drifted a bit, and uh, I think also we are we you know we we both want ownership in a way that makes it hard for us to uh, to share. Uh, not that there has been you know any any tension or anything like that. It's just we'll start talking about something, and 
And, you know, a few hours into the conversation, we'll, we'll reach a point where I want to go in one direction and Nathan wants to <laughs> go in another. And, uh, and so we, we, we go in our separate directions. Yeah. But those are great conversations. I always enjoy talking about the stories we're, we should collaborate on, but we can't for some reason. So you talk, you, you, you talk out your ideas with each other, uh, and then you go off and write them separately. That often happens. Uh, and, uh, you know, Nathan is, uh, is, uh, one of the, the few people who sees things that I write in draft and, uh, and, uh, and we talk a lot about what we're, what we're working on, um, uh, that we don't necessarily always talk through every story, but we're pretty much, you know, always aware of what, uh, the other, the other one is working on. And, uh, and we certainly do talk about what's working and what's not. It's a lot of griping. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get this to work, we'll say. And, uh, but we always seem to make it work somehow or other. I think it's interesting because in one of these stories, there's an artist character and she has what she calls the tea kettle theory, which is basically if you talk about something, some, some work in progress, you'll, you'll never do it because you, get all the pressure out just by talking about it. So do you not subscribe then to the, the tea kettle theory? <laughs> well, that's a complicated answer because, uh, I, I do subscribe to the tea kettle theory, but for some reason, uh, Nathan is, uh, the exception to the rule. Uh, our minds just seem to move in the same channels when we, when we, uh, when we talk about stories, but, uh, but but yeah, I I don't generally talk about you know works in progress uh, simply because I I don't know what they're going to turn out to be yet, and I I also you know I find that I find that it does it does uh, relieve that pressure. It's it's like outlining something or, or you know um, writing a proposal, and in, in some cases that that sort of makes it feel like it's already done. So can you subscribe to a theory and not subscribe to <laughs> a theory at the same time? But uh, is that possible? <laughs> okay, so one of the stories that I, I mo enjoyed most of all out of this book that I really wanted to ask you about is called Lightning Jack's Last Ride. Could you just talk about what that story is about and how you came up with the idea? Uh, sure. Lightning Jack's Last Ride is, uh, a title that occurred to me, uh, many, many, uh, years ago before it was written. I think I first got the title in the late, in the late nineties. Um, where the title came from, I, I don't know. Uh, a lot of stories suggest themselves to me as titles and the, the process of, Figuring out what that title is really about, uh, is, is, you know, the unfolding of the story itself. So I took st several different stabs at Lightning Jack's Last Ride and, uh, and, and finally I happened upon the, uh, the idea of, uh, of, you know, a, a race car driver who is, who is unable to race anymore. And it was, you know, there it was just a matter from there of, but what are the circumstances that prevent him from doing it? Uh, the thing he loves. And, uh, and, uh, so it was a, it was a matter of then of, of inventing the world around this character. One of the things I enjoyed most about that character is the narrator's voice. He, you know, he's a, he's an observer of Lightning Jack. Lightning Jack is only seen from the outside by this first person speaker. And I enjoyed discovering that, that speaker's voice a great deal. Right. So you have this race car driver and the reason that he can't race is because it's in this dystopian peak oil future and, and oil is so, has become so scarce that, uh, it's sort of only used by the military basically. Um, and just talk about creating. And, and so, so the character, so they, he turns to highway robbery, sort of knocking over these, um, these oil tankers, uh, to, so they right. can keep racing. Right. And then there's this sort of underground racing world. And I think, you know, the, I, the other influence on the story was very much, uh, I had been thinking and reading about, you know, uh, 
criminals from the uh you know these criminal gangs in the 1920s uh and uh yeah, uh, gosh, I can't think of a name right off the top of my head. But uh, uh, I've been thinking about those larger-than-life personalities uh, of these of these criminals in the in the twenties, and and I wanted to create a larger-than-life personality like that. So it's it's like I took Babyface Nelson, there's a name, and uh, or someone <laughs> you know of his ilk, and set him. In, into this racing world, so I was interested in in writing about this character Lightning Jack, and and I was reading about and thinking about these these characters. Uh, I guess I guess they were actually during the Depression in the 30s, and uh, and and those two sort of coincided uh, to to create the story. I mean, how much of the world building did you do before you started writing it? Because I guess you had to figure out some reason why. Um, you know, highway robbery would come back in the future. Yeah, I. The story was very drafty, by which I mean, you know, it went through a lot of iterations as I did the world building. Um, I almost never sort of figure out the world before I start writing. It's more like a process of discovering the world and then sort of refining the world through the through the actual process of putting the piece together um so you know things things sort of occur to me as i go and and then there's a recursive process where i'm going back to fix the early parts of the story so they so they match the, <laughs> the world building that has occurred as i continue to move forward uh so my process is very much that kind of recursive process. And, uh, I, you know, I hear writers talk about, well, I've done my first draft. I'm going to get back and do my second draft. And, and I understand that theoretically, I suppose, but because I'm always, you know, inching forward and then going back and, and working on what I've done, uh, by the time I reach the end of a piece, it feels very much like I've, reached at the end of the piece. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions, but, but generally that's the way it works for me. Right. So, for example, you had to dream up, I guess, that the air is so polluted that air, that satellite uh, surveillance and, and fighter jets and things aren't really practical now uh, in, to make it possible <laughs> to, you know, uh, right. capture I ha- a I, I had to get rid of airplanes. Uh, fight, fighter jets would render, render the whole story, uh, impossible. And, uh, you know, I don't, I am in, I, in no way am I a, a hard science fiction writer as, as you, if you've read, you know, through the collection, no. <laughs> but, uh, so, I, you know, that was a piece of window dressing. I don't, I don't know if actually air could get that polluted that planes couldn't fly. Uh, I suppose it's possible, but uh, but anyway, it it was the window dressing I needed to make the story work, and uh, I you know I think I, I think you need just enough of that kind of window dressing to uh, to enable the reader to accept the world of the story while while she's reading it. Um, you know, I, I think of the Samuel Taylor Coleridge quote about suspending your disbelief and uh and and that's what i was trying to do in that you know with the airplanes and and the satellites uh being unable to function is just provide enough background or enough explanation that the uh the reader could find a way to buy into the story and and, and, yeah i hope it worked (laughs) Well, one of the world-building details is that the United States has fractured after Washington, D.C. was destroyed by the NRA with a dirty bomb. Is that some political commentary there? <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess uh, I, have to, uh, I have to cop to that. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, I think it is, you know, uh, it, it, it speaks to my concern about the the violent nature of our country, certainly, uh, and domestic terrorism and, uh, and 
And while I, you know, don't and wouldn't in reality perhaps equate the NRA with a terrorist organization, again, it was just a way to to uh, move the story forward. But I wrote another story called Death and Suffrage, uh, which appears in my first collection, which is very much about, you know, uh, about guns and, and, and how they function in our culture and my concerns about that, which have become exacerbated as we, you know, have mass shooting after mass shooting. You know, I teach at a college. My wife teaches high school, and these are often sites where these things occur. I think about these things. I mean, how... So, so the, the, on the cover of the book, it, there's a quote from James Patrick Kelly, and he says, Dale Bailey is the poet of the apocalypse. I was curious what you thought about that. <laughs> Jim was one of my teachers at, uh, at Clarion. Uh, I've known him for years. Uh, I hope that that's, uh, you know, I, I hope that that is true, at least of the book. It was certainly very flattering to, uh, to receive that blurb. Uh, I, I'll have to let Jim in the end, you know, have the last word on that. I don't, I don't know that I would claim personally to be a poet of the apocalypse or perhaps of anything else. <laughs> but you do write a lot about the apocalypse. I mean, there's two stories about the end of the world and this is a dystopian story. And that, and... Right. Well, I guess there's the, the end of, uh, the end of everything is kind of a, well, not kind of, it's definitely an end of the world story. Uh, the opening story in the book is, uh, is, uh, the end of the world as we know it, uh, which is obviously an end of the world story. So that, that kind of, those stories bookend the collection and I think speak to the general tenor of the, uh, of the, of the collection, which is, you know, uh, it's, it's a dark book and, and I think, you know, those, those stories sort of set the tone of the book. And, you know, Lightning Jack is sort of toward the middle. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a story about the world unwinding, uh, as well. Um, it, it feels to me in this particular historical moment that the world is unwinding. And, and I think the stories just reflect where I was coming from, you know, the, the environment I was living in when I wrote them. Which is to say, I mean, they're not conscious statements. Uh, you know, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a political commentator or anything like that. It's just, it's it, rather they just grow out of a sense of, you know, this, that, that, that the culture is in a dark place. And, uh, and, and, and so these are the stories that emerge. Uh, rather than me coming up with a story to express a political point of view, uh, that, that these are just the ones that come out because of the cultural environment I find myself in. Right. So in the story, uh, the end of the world as we know it, it's very, it's a very self-aware end of the world story where there's sections talking about, oh, in end of the world stories, it always happens like this or it usually happens like that. Uh, could you talk about why you wanted to tell the story in that way? Um, I, yeah, that was a very deliberate decision. Um, this is an ironic thing for me to say, I suppose, but you know, there's this, there's this part of us that, that sort of finds the end of the world appealing in some way. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's an opportunity to, uh, to create dramatic, uh, dramatic stories it's you know mad max fury road it's you know it's this this really cool car chase and you know whatever it's so we're attracted to these stories and and i certainly am attracted to these stories you know whether they're mad max or or written by you know jg ballard uh and i was trying to think about why that is because i don't really you know want the world to end. I don't. So, so where did that, you know, where did that attraction come from? And I thought about how into the story, into the world stories worked. And then, um, 
And then I set that against what would really feel like the end of the world to me, which is, you know, losing my family, uh, which is what the, the main character in the story contends with. And, uh, and, and it made me realize that, you know, for somebody, their world is ending, you know, even as we speak right now, uh, somewhere some tragedy is, is, is enveloping someone and, and, and the world is going to be completely remade as a consequence. And it can happen at any time. And, uh, and so the story, the story was an attempt to sort of compare that, you know, that, that idea that the world is always ending with, uh, with the, the tropes of the end of the world story and, uh, and, and get down into the emotional, uh, the, the, the emotional power that is, that is, that is, you know, latent, the, the terror that is latent in that, in that personal apocalypse rather than this, you know, science fictional apocalypse that we, that we sort of enjoy. I mean, the way that the story lays out these standard formulas that end of the world stories fall into kind of conveys the sense to me that you might, you maybe feel that the end of the world story is, um, played out or exhausted to some extent. Is that, is that true? Um, I would have to think about that. I don't, I don't think that it's exhausted. What, what I was concerned about was, the use of these these tropes without any examination of the the sort of moral consequences of of these kinds of tropes uh, you, you know I, there is a section of the story you may you may remember it where it talks about you know the first end of the world story is is the uh is the the garden of eden right uh where where you know adam and eve are thrown out of of the the story or out of the you know out of the out of the garden into into a world of of death and suffering and and you know pain and childbirth and what have you and and i was thinking about that as a kind of end of the world story and that's a that's a pretty terrifying story, you know, when you think about it. And that led me to thinking about another end of the story world story that I referenced uh uh in that in that particular story, which was um these 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 stories that depict the rapture and 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 you know, all the good people are raptured into heaven and all the bad people are left and I was thinking about how horrible that that really is. It's a conceit. All the good people are going to be raptured to heaven. What about the good people who are flying planes, right? That doesn't seem fair to all the people on the plane who have to who have to contend with that. So, so yeah. That I mean, this the story is as much about the horror of the real horror of of the end of the world, whether personal or or you know your home being destroyed in a in a in a tidal wave. Uh, I think I think that's what the story is about. Is this is a really horrible, terrible thing, and we tend to take it very lightly in fiction. Uh, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in this this other story you mentioned, the end of the end of everything. Uh, sort of on a on a surface level, it's about the end of the world, but then it turn it takes a turn and becomes it seems to me much more about art and what is the purpose of art and at some level what is the point of art? Um, is is that something that that you sort of wrestle with a lot? Like what is the point of art? I it is something I wrestle with. I mean, um, we are storytelling creatures. And I think the stories we tell about ourselves and, and, and to one another are, you know, are, it's really important to think hard about what those stories are. Um, you know, if you tell yourself a certain kind of story, you wind up doing terrible things to other people. Uh, you know, and, and I think that 
we really need to examine that carefully when we sit down uh, to write a story or to make a movie or, or you know, create, a, create some kind of fictional world. Um, I think these things matter. And that sounds kind of pretentious. I don't want to, you know, hang myself with the, the capital A art uh, kind of label. But I just think it's really important to consider the, you know, what are these stories that we tell ourselves doing to us? And, you know, how, how did they affect us? And what choices do we make as creators given the fact that they do influence us? I mean, the world is driven by stories. Christianity is a, is a story, right? And it, it, it shapes the existence of millions of people. Uh, I think we should examine these stories. But so you've never gone through a, a mind frame like the character in the story where he's feeling sort of like, what is the point of my writing career? Maybe I should give up, do something else. Have you, know, have you ever uh, been in a, a, a spot like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, every day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you do. You do wonder what it's about uh, as a, you know, on a personal level should, you know, it's, I have, you know, I have, I have met writers who seem to like enjoy the process in a way that, in a way that I don't. And, and uh, I think it would be easy to walk away, except it's impossible to walk away because you kind of, driven to do it and the character in the story is you know these are the issues he faces and and at the end uh of the story he he you know he's a he's a he's a struggling poet uh who has never really achieved any kind of recognition and he he turns back in the face of truly the end of the world you know knowing that everything is going to come crashing down around uh around him uh the world is is going to come to an end and he sits down and he he starts to write a poem in spite of that and uh you know it's it's uh it's 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 like you know that Dylan Thomas poem about you know standing tall against the dying of the light i think that's what it's about I mean, one line from that story that really struck me is uh, the character thinks to himself, what else was art to do if it didn't strip away our masks and expose us raw and naked to the world? Do you feel like that's what you do when you write fiction? Yeah. <laughs> Can I give you a one-word answer? Uh, I think that is. I mean, I think... Look... <sighs> There are different ways of writing fiction, and I don't devalue any of them, okay? Um, but for me, um, like, a story has to have some, it has to have some center. It has to have something to, to, to say. Now, whether I'm successful at that or not is, is up to, you know, is up to others to judge. But, but it, ha there has to be something uh, at the center of a story that is, that is honest and raw. Um, and if there is not, I, I don't find the story that satisfying as a, as a reader. Uh, and, and I don't find it very satisfying to write those stories. Certainly I have, uh, but, but I don't find them as interesting as a, as a writer, as I do the stories that are kind of risky. And, you know, the end of the end of everything was kind of a risky story for me. Uh, I felt like I think it, it, you know, it, it's about the insecurities of, of, and the, you know, the, the incredible arrogance of the act of writing and expecting people to be interested in it and, uh, and grappling with that. Do you ever have people comment on, 
very private things that you put in your work or do people generally just kind of like not want to, they re just read the work and don't comment on it because they don't want to like touch that? Um, I mean, if you, if you were reading something, uh, by me, uh, I think, I mean, you, you may recognize some, something in it, but, you know, until this, until this conversation we're having, we've never met. So you don't, like, recognize that raw part of myself that's in the story. I, I mean, you may sense it, but you don't recognize it, I think, as part of me. Does that make sense? Um, but, you know, if, if my family, uh, reads it, then, then, then they, you know, they may see things that, that are perilous to see. Right. Well, it seems like part of the, one of the nice things about fiction is that you can put in all this stuff that isn't true. And that gives you sort of the courage to put in the stuff that is true because no one is ever really going to know what's true and what isn't. Right. I think that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and I mean, I think there are, I want to distinguish between truth and fact and, and, uh, the fact that we all have our truths. And I think that, you know, uh, that, that, that that's what I try to explore when I write is what are my truths? What do I believe? What do I, what I, what do I think about the world? Uh, and, and how people interact. I'm, I'm really much more interested in the people in my stories than in the, the, you know, the stuff that's happening around them. Uh, it starts with character for me. And, uh, and, you know, I think of, uh, Faulkner's, uh, Nobel Prize winning speech, I think it was, where he said the only reason to write is to write about the, the human heart in conflict with itself. And I, I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Well, I mean, speaking of characters, why don't you tell us about the characters in your new novel, In the Nightwood? Well, my characters in my new novel are uh, a college professor of English. So already <laughs> you begin to see how close this, this cuts to the, this cuts to the, cuts to the bone. And, uh, and he is coping with his, uh, his implicit responsibility at some level for the death of his child and, uh, and how that affects his relationship with his, with his wife. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, that, that, that seems to be the engine that, the engine that drives the story to me is, uh, again, it's a story of personal apocalypse. I was thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen to me? You know, because this is the kind of person I am, I guess. Uh, you know, and I was thinking, my God, what if I lost my child? And, and what if somehow I was, you know, at least partially responsible for the loss of that child? How do you live with that? How do you move forward from that? Uh, how does that affect your relationships with the people you love and who love you? And, uh, and that was in some sense one of the, one of the points that the novel began is that question. Of what is the worst thing that can happen to you? And the answer to me was losing your child. Um, it sounds so cheery and uplifting, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah. So, but well, why don't you tell us as well about just some of the other aspects of the story? So, the, this couple uh, finds themselves residing in this country estate, and um, it's bound up with this book that the the protagonist uh, had encountered as a child. Yeah, he's encountered this book, and he's he is, uh, you know, as as part of the general disaster that has overtaken his life, he's lost his job, and he is looking for a way to. Uh, you know, to, to find a way to work usefully in a way. Um, and he, he, he is fascinated by this, this fantasy novel, um, you know, kind of a fairy tale, uh, that had been 
written in the in the uh in the eighteen forties and uh he has the opportunity to go and study uh, to to go to the home of this this writer uh who wrote this fairy tale you know years and years and years ago more than a century ago and perhaps do some do some research on him and and this is a way both to get away from the the you know the the pain of his daughter's death and and he hopes in some way maybe to redeem himself uh, in a small way and uh what he finds uh i think what he finds is is that the world of the fantasy that he is he is reading about in this book uh is bleeding into the world around him so the book at some level is about the eruption of you know the 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 transcendent world uh the supernatural world into the mundane world and and the story is sort of sort of i think poised on the knife edge of trying to sort out uh you know what's real and what's not i think that's the question he he has to deal with as he as he tries to untangle the the interconnections between the historical record uh of this writer and the work that the writer did uh you know this book that he's produced called in the nightwood I th- one thing that struck me in the acknowledgments is that you say that Barry Malsberg read drafts of this and provided advice. And I was just curious how you know him and what he had to say about the book. Um, Barry uh, is is a longtime friend, uh, acquaintance friend. Uh, he wrote me a letter out of the blue uh, not long after I started publishing. Uh, about a story called uh, "Touched," which I had, which I had just written uh, and published in fantasy and science fiction, and he wrote me to tell me how much he liked it, and and uh, and that was very flattering to me because, of course, I had been reading reading Barry. Uh, he was one of those writers in the in the public library that I was sort of going through, and it was like having you know one of your uh, you know, one of the people you really looked up to reach down and, and, and say that what you're doing is worthwhile. And, you know, Barry has read some drafts of things along the way. And, um, and, and he read this and, and he was, you know, he was, he, he was concerned about the darkness of the book, which is funny in a way. Uh, because Barry, you know, Barry's fiction is very dark. Uh, but, but he was concerned that perhaps, uh, these, these characters would not be sympathetic enough to a reader. And I, I don't know whether he was right or not. Uh, I went, I went forward with it and, and, uh, and it is, you know, out in the world. And I guess people can make their own decisions about it. Uh, but Barry's friendship has, has meant a lot, and uh, and that letter really meant uh, a lot. It was validating. I had, I had a similar experience with uh, with uh, Robert Silverberg, who who uh, emailed me out of the blue to ask if he could reprint a, a story of mine called "The Rain at the End of the World," which was uh, another apocalypse <laughs> story. Now that I think about it. And, uh, just, you know, opening my email and seeing Robert Silverberg there was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a stunning moment. And, uh, and that, that, that was, that was a powerful moment in my life. Uh, what was, re- what was really interesting is, uh, what, what was even more powerful in a way is that he emailed me again the next day and said, I actually like this other story too. So, so I'd like to reprint it as well. Uh, and that was the end of the world as we know it. And so, uh, so there, there are those little moments where, you know, the people you have looked up to for years reach out and, uh, and they're very gratifying. So that's, that's how I came to know Barry and, uh, with a little Robert Silverberg thrown in. <laughs> well, and another person who was involved in this book was John Joseph Adams, who was the editor and 
he'll yeah. be well known to listeners of this podcast. Could you just sort of say what it was like working with him? Working with John is a uh, is great. Uh, I mean, John John had where I had worked with John some when he was a first reader of fantasy and science fiction, where I was publishing a lot of short fiction. And then you know he he went out on his own and uh, started started doing anthologies, and I he reprinted some of my work in those anthologies, and and then he started Nightmare and Lightspeed, and and I ended up selling stories to him there. So by the time you know I uh, he 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 looked at the book, uh, we were pretty well acquainted. So it was. It was it was a very comfortable relationship because we had worked together so frequently before, and uh, you know his his contribution to the book was was pretty 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 significant. Uh, he enabled me to see some things that I I hadn't seen, and uh, and you know he pushed me in places where I had taken the the easy way out, and uh, and and. I think that's what a good editor does, and I think John's a great editor. Well, it says in the acknowledgments, too, you say, I was lost for a long time on this book. How how long were you working on it? I started working on it. Uh, the, the, the genesis of the book came from two points. One point was the question that I already mentioned about how do you cope with the death of a child? And the other point was the fantasy conceit of the book, which is uh, this this forest that surrounds the estate, which is kind of bigger on the inside than it than it is on the outside. If that makes sense, you you go into it and you go into a different place, a uh, different you know kind of reality almost, uh, and. And that dimension of the book occurred to me on the on the drive back from uh, the World Fantasy Convention in 2003. It was in Washington D.C., I think. Uh, and there was a long section of Interstate 85 where there was there was nothing, right? There were just trees as far as you could see on both sides of the road, and there were. It's like no one lived in that place for you know 70 miles or so. Um, and, and I was with my friend Jack Slay, with whom I collaborated on another novel, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I think I said to Jack, I feel like the trees go on forever. And, uh, and, and so it was that fantasy conceit, this huge forest, that then became a, uh, um, uh, a way to bring this story about a, a father who has lost his child into into focus, uh, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, have you gotten any uh, responses on the book from readers or reviewers or anything? I have. Um, you know, it's the the great temptation as a writer is to read reviews. <laughs> And, you know, you read the good ones and you think, uh, well, I did well. And then you read somebody who, who, who didn't like the book. And if you accept the, I did well, you know, uh, you're sort of honor bound to accept the, the reader who, who didn't like the book. Uh, but, uh, but so I, I take reviews with some, you know, with, with a, with a grain of salt, um, but the the response to this book has been generally positive and uh and therefore I give them credence. So how but, if you uh, Go ahead. Oh well you said you were concerned that people would um think the couple was not um sympathetic enough or the book was too dark. Have you how have people reacted to that? Uh there have been people that reacted to the story that way. And uh that's a legitimate yeah, that's a legitimate reaction. You you put the book out there, and, and people people get to make their own decisions about it. That's that's the nature of the business, I think. But but there have been there have been readers who have found the characters too too uh, unsympathetic, perhaps too too uh, too tortured, uh, and 
and you know if that's the way they find the book they're they're certainly well within their rights to respond to it it's it's their book now it's not mine um and and there have been um you know and there have been very positive reactions so i don't i don't know i don't know how to i don't know quite how to respond except i will say this as a writer you sometimes hear this notion that characters must be likable and sympathetic. And I don't really buy that. Although I find Charles, the main character, uh, and, and his wife, Aaron, in the novel, both to be likable and sympathetic people. They're just deeply flawed and people in pain, uh, and people who have made mistakes. Uh, but, but that, that's how I see them. But I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that characters have to be sympathetic. I think characters have to be interesting and true. And, uh, and, and that's what drives the work of fiction for me when I read. I just think it's funny because, you know, I don't know Barry Malsberg well, but just by reputation, I know of him as being a sort of morose person who writes very dark fiction. And so just to have him say like, well, this book is kind of too dark. Uh, you know, obviously it's a book that, that that will appeal to people who like like dark stories. I think you know, you know Barry. Barry is a multidimensional guy, and and as uh, I think his his inclinations, his sort of his sort of view of the world is a dark view. Um, and but he also, you know, he worked for for years as a as a first reader at the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. So he has a finely honed sense of what makes a book commercial, I think, as well. And and I think he was worried about that that dimension of it, you know. Not it's too dark and that it doesn't you know re- reflect reality or whatever. Uh but it may be too dark to to find the readership that it you know, he would want it to find. And uh I hope he's wrong. <laughs> well, if everyone listening to this goes out and buys a copy, then uh, you know it'll all turn out for the best. It'll all turn out happily, copy, happily ever please. after. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> all right, so Dale, we're pretty much out of time. So, do you have just any final thoughts, or do you want to have? Do you have any other projects you want to mention? Um. You know, I I do have a, a series of short stories which uh, which I think are a lot of fun, in which I'm taking uh, these titles of old science fiction and fantasy movies from the '50s and trying to write like, emotionally serious stories around these titles. Uh, you know, like I Married a Monster from Outer Space, to take that conceit literally and uh, and then do something interesting with it uh, in a in a in an emotional sense and. Uh, so I'm working on those, and those are, you know, those are the main things I have going in terms of short fiction. And, uh, uh, I have, uh, I have novels, uh, that I'm working on as well, but, uh, let's, let's go with the tea kettle theory. <laughs> those. So where would people find those stories, the, the short stories you mentioned? Um, they have been in, uh, Clark's World, uh, uh, there was one about the cre- the creature from the Black Lagoon in Clark's world, uh, and uh, there was one called Teenagers from Outer Space in Clark's world. Uh, John published one called The Horror of Party Beach uh, just uh, just last month. Uh, Sheila Williams at Asimov's has published a couple of them. She published uh, I Married a Monster from Outer Space and uh, Invasion of the Saucer Men. And, uh, so those, they're, you know, that, those are the main markets that, uh, that have picked them up, uh, to this point. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds great. And everyone definitely go check, check all that out. And so we've been speaking with Dale Bailey about his books in the night wood and the end of the end of everything. So Dale, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Dale Bailey for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Kai Wood, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks.
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.